the What I Watch Tonight show. Good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to Thriller Nights from What I Watch Tonight. My name is Matt Hudson, and joining me is my wonderful co-host from across the stars and hemispheres, and Coca-Cola lip balm wearing co-host... <laughs> Ashley! <laughs> How on earth are you, Ashley? I'm good. Now I'm just going to be known as that chick who wears Coca-Cola lip balm. That's as I said, you have to look good for a podcast. I haven't even done my hair. I have had a shave yesterday, not necessarily for this, but let's pretend I have. I've got an old hoodie <laughs> on and some old jeans, so I really am slumming it. So I haven't bothered with lip balm. But I'm glad you did. Oh, thank you. I had, you know, six different flavours to choose from. I went with Coca-Cola. No, good. I, I, I applaud your choice on a Saturday morning slash evening for you over there. Thank you. Thank you. I suppose the first question is, how the bloody hell are you? I'm good. I'm almost completely over being sick. Hooray. Yes, yeah, so Ashley hasn't been. She's actually said not been well, and her laptop's also been sick. So it hasn't been the best few weeks. <laughs> no, it's been a freaking disaster. <laughs> but here we are now. Thriller nights. This show exists solely to focus on the chilling, the creepy, usually grim, generally great world of thrillers. Not always. And each month, Ashley and myself discuss a different movie from the genre, and we get right into it. So, Ashley, can you reveal the movie we're going to be reviewing for this second episode, please? With great pleasure. Today we will be discussing Seven, which is a 1995 American neo-noir crime thriller film directed by David Fincher and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It tells the story of two detectives trying to track down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as a motif in his murders. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust... And end it. You know, this isn't going to have a happy ending. It's not possible. Hey, man, we catch him, I'll be happy enough. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. Detective. After this, I'm Detective. gone. No big surprise. Detective! You're looking for me. What's your fucking move? I hate this city. A soothing, relaxing, vibrating home. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, all right, laugh it up. Fucking Dante. Goddamn poetry writing faggot piece of shit. Oh god, oh god, oh god, he had a gun in my mouth. The fucking gun was in my throat. Fuck! Wait a minute, I thought all you did was kill innocent people. Innocent? Is that supposed to be funny? I'm trying to tell you how much I admire you and your pretty wife. What? Tracy. 
What'd you fucking say? He's not the devil. He's just a man. And what I've done is gonna be puzzled over and studied and followed. David, if you kill him, he will win. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. 23 years old, if my maths serves me right. Seven. Did you pause just to count that? No, I um, I tried to feel dramatic tension. <laughs> I swear <laughs> it comes off like, I could just picture you trying to count on your fingers how many years and that toes, was. <laughs> and ears and eyebrows. I used everything possible which I could count. Old enough, it's, probably, it's old enough to have got over no, gotten over acne now. But it's, it's David Fincher directed it. It's interesting because he came off the back of doing Alien 3. Now, have you seen that? Of course I have. What a question. I'm going to not spend much time on Alien 3, but did you like it? I think so. Which one was Alien 3 again? I always get them confused. It was the one which was set in the um, like sp- space prison type thing. Uh, yeah, wasn't a big fan of that one. I didn't no, hate yeah. it. I just didn't love it. Not to mention the fact that, you know, everyone was trying to rape Sigourney Weaver. I mean... Could live without that, but great, you know. She's already getting, yeah. like, internally throat-raped by an alien. I mean, did we really need to add actual rape as well? Like, come yeah. on, it's enough. She's probably had better weeks than that particular one, but her character, Old Ripley. But no, I mentioned it because David Fincher, he hated that film because he had his own he had his own plan for it, and the studio, uh, 20th Century Fox, threw it out and basically made... Because he was a up-and-coming director, so they knew they could basically say... You know, we're the we're the pseudo execs. You do as we say. So if we want the mm. film to look shit, it's going to look shit. So he hated that film, and it put, almost put him off directing. So Seven was kind of a return to form of sorts with him, for him. But it took an awful long time for him to actually get back into the into the director's chair. But as we now know, Finch has gone on to uh, direct an awful lot of very decent films. Some which may even probably end up being discussed by us in the months and years to come. Well, you know, at least. It's good to see that he kind of stuck to his guns because he apparently, apparently, no, he just, he clearly has a talent for it and it would have been horrible if this one really shitty occurrence with a studio kind of meant we didn't end up with the seven that we have now. Or even just any films that he's done, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But I mean, his the idea came from the screenwriter uh, Andrew Kevin Walker. He spent time in New York and he absolutely hated it. Apparently, now I've never been to New York, so I can't say what it's like. But he hated it, which and it was his experiences which shaped the look of the film, which I'm, which is the, one of the most important parts of the film. But if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have the look of it. Uh, but also, we've had some pretty cool stuff. Like Al Pacino was considered for the Somerset role, which went to Morgan Freeman. Denzel Washington sliced alone with turned down the role of Mills, which went to Brad Pitt, which I can't imagine a film with Al Pacino and Sylvester Stallone in it. I I know. When I saw the Sylvester Stallone one, I just cracked up laughing, and I'm like, I don't think I would have been able to take this film seriously if he was in it. I just can't. Hey, Mills, you've got seven deadly sins. Eh? Pride, lust, eh? it just, that was That was Sylvester Stallone, by the way, guys. Um, it would have been awful. And I like Sylvester Stallone an awful lot, but... Uh. I Being that I, I have been to New York, I can totally see where the writer was coming from. <laughs> well, I'd like to go for the pizza. Oh, I hated the pizza. That was probably the worst thing about <gasps> being in New York. 
Holy sh- Shazam! <laughs> it's me desperate to go over there so I can have a piece of pizza longer than my thigh. And now I've heard it's pap. What's wrong with it? I'm sorry. I know that, you know, you know, you hear people from New York raving about a New York pizza. So obviously it was like one of the things I had to try. Mm. And I just remember tipping up this box and the whole box has become grease logged it's breaking apart and i haven't even started eating the pizza yet you can tip it up and it's just pouring out grease it was flat it was as chewy as cardboard and it was i i hated it and then as soon as i got home back to australia i'm like give me a pizza and it was it was nice and fluffy but crunchy and full of toppings and i was like yay i'm home and I bet the toilet didn't appreciate the New York pizza either. But, oh, that's disappointing me. So now I've got to go to New York and Melbourne. So, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of where they are in the world. Well, from my side, anyway, we're in the middle. And try the pizzas. So um, you're telling me Melbourne is going to be better? Well, no. Yes. I, can't, I can't speak for your taste buds. <laughs> I do just know that, you know, I have had americans come stay with me and i have had them try the local pizza and they have said it's better than anything they had back home so i will say that fight 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 <laughs> <laughs> my i will eat anything uh yeah pizza thanks for that so everyone's asking go check out the two pizzas from new york and melbourne and get back to us um hashtag pizza gate thriller nights please <laughs> but, but back to it we mentioned david fincher he wanted to approach this film like the kind of film William Friedkin would do. And of course you think Friedkin, you think The French Connection, of course you think The Exorcist, uh, To Live and Die in LA, those kind of films. So so as a Friedkin fan attic, I can see the influences in this film uh, and just seeing the name attached to something that David Fincher would, uh, has been inspired by uh, made me pretty happy. So I thought I'd just throw that in. I don't know if you're a fan of Friedkin or not. I got to admit, I'm usually one of those people who I can know almost every movie a person has done, but not know the person who did it. Yeah, it's fair enough. No, Friedkin has lots of big movies, but not. But he's also got lots of kind of very good movies which fly under the radar, which have his stamp all over them. But no, I'm, I'm, for me, I was just glad because I'm a I'm a fanboy, but I can also admit when some of his films are a bit shit. <laughs> so seven, it made. A lot of money in 1995, made 327.1 million worldwide, broken down roughly as 100.1 million in the United States. Over here, it made 30.6 million, and down under in Australia, it made 8.6 million. So it's fairly successful everywhere it went. I mean, I was, I don't remember this film coming out because I was only 10. Uh, I can't imagine you remember this film coming out either. I don't, and I certainly don't remember any advertising for it. So there's a possibility that was probably only released in select theatres here. Yeah, but also I was too—I was far too young to know anything about these kind of scary movies. So um, that's my excuse anyway. But as for the film, shall we dive into it? I, I think that would be a good idea, yeah. It's usually a good place to start yeah, at the beginning of the film. And it's not often we're probably going to talk about this, but the opening credits, the title sequence of this film, is bloody awesome. It does away with just the, you know, t- names coming across the screen and your font with... As it as we are introduced to the characters and whatnot with a cool little soundtrack, it it's a really sort of skitty, wired introduction with handwritten credits, which we're led to believe is done by the killer of this film, and it's done so well. At the time, it was called revolutionary, and it's one of the things I remember about this film is just how cool those kind of first opening few minutes were. Well, that's a pretty fair assessment. 
Okay, well, <laughs> there you go then. So getting it, getting into the film, we we then meet uh, Detective Mills, uh, which is Brad Pitt, and he's been reassigned from somewhere an awful lot nicer to this sort of grungy, grimy, dirty city, which where it's always pissing down with rain. Uh, and he's teamed up with Detective Somerset, which is Morgan Freeman. So already we get two high class actors working together straight away. Yes, 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 we do. That is that is true. Good, you've got your facts right. That's great. Yes, I am factually aware today that Freeman and Brad Pitt are very good actors. But yeah, she's but um, Mills has moved with his wife Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm sure she's going to be just fine in this film. And she's not entirely keen on this new place they've moved to. They they moved to this little apartment, which is which rumbles whenever a train goes past. It's a bit. It's quite small. It's not particularly what she's grown accustomed to. So she's not happy. Um, put it like that. So if you've got we've got a up and coming police officer. We've got a grumpy old officer in Morgan Freeman who's not a retiring officer. Yes, and it's not one of those cliches where he's like, ah, God, he was going to retire tomorrow. He's soon to retire, and he's quite looking forward to it. Although it is kind of it is kind of like that, because he is, what, days away from retirement, and he's, <laughs> yeah. he gets a serial killer, and the whole time he's just like, no, I don't want any part of it. This is not how I want to go out. And he just still ends up being drawn into it. I'm pretty sure by the end of it, he's just like, fuck my life. <laughs> Yeah, I think by the end of this film, I think he would have wished for earlier retirement, given what he sees. But you've mentioned the serial killer. This is what the film's all about. So everything else is awesome, but this is about the seven deadly sins. I like the that idea for a a thriller movie, and I know you like your thrillers. Okay. Top level, the seven deadly sins might be a silly question, but good idea to base a film around. I am kind of obsessed with the topic of the seven deadly sins and whenever they pop up in film and television, I'm like immediately there. I'm there. You've got me. I'm hooked. We're, we're good. We are good. Hell yeah. Can you, can you uh, list them off the top of your head? Let's see. We have pride, envy, wrath, lust, sloth, greed, and gluttony. Good. Well, good. Well done for referring to your notes there. Um, I would have preferred I didn't have it more notes. Than... <laughs> I don't have notes. That was memory. <laughs> I believe you. Thousands <laughs> wouldn't, but I wish you'd done it in Morgan Freeman's voice. Oh, I can't do a Morgan Freeman impersonation. <laughs> Neither can I, so I'm not going to bother. But this Good. is the film is about those seven deadly sins. So the two, the two are kind of put together. Mills and Somerset, reluctantly, shall we say, Somerset doesn't want this hot-headed young uh, detective. Mills thinks he's good enough to lead investigations or or do it alone. But the cranky uh, police chief says, no, you're doing as I'm telling, you're working together. And their first assignment is, it turns out to be the first deadly sin, which is gluttony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, gluttony. I'm a bit of a glutton. I'm a glutton for most bad things, but so is this guy. He's a... Uh, they basically enter. They enter a house, dark house. It stinks. There's flies everywhere, and they find a morbidly, and that's putting it lightly, morbidly obese man face down in a bowl of spaghetti, uh, in his pants or underwear, whatever you guys call it. He is clearly dead, and they mention it. Do they have to take a pulse? But this guy's tied to a chair with a face full of food, and they've got to try and work out what the hell's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do recall that uh, that was not 
an actual morbidly obese person, but it was a person in a hell of a lot of prosthetics. Yes, you'd have Poor to be. A, yeah, it would. It would well, imagine what what would the uh, casting be like? We need somebody who's morbid. Oh, you know, you're not obese enough for us. We need somebody else so we can put you in our pants and cover you in food. <laughs> yeah, it's best to put them in a fat suit. Well, probably, especially if you are going, well, I don't know, would you, which is worse, being a person who is of that size and it's like, hi, we just need you to stay in this position for a few hours. Would it be better if the person is obese or is not obese and is just wearing some really heavy prosthetics? Um, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that about people's, <laughs> feeling, about people's feelings, but um, well, it looked good. I think I thought the prosthetics looked good because obviously didn't have to move, so it's quite. True, I, don't true. Say, I don't want to say easy, but it was. A, they had a you know decent job by the fact that he just laid their face down. So they what they did, they did well. But they find out that yeah, he'd been left. He'd been left there for an awful long time. Somebody had been mm. feeding them up and basically booted him in the stomach, and his organs ruptured. I think it's quite funny how in that scene you've actually got people questioning if it is murder. Like, hi, he's been bound and he's dead. How did he kill how did he tie himself up and kill himself like <laughs> Yeah. The local police force doesn't uh, cover themselves in glory particularly there, but yeah, they have to actually ask the question, how do we know this is a murder? Representing gluttony, so for this <laughs> For this first scene, um, first death scene, murder scene, <laughs> did you like it? Did you like it? it? Was an effective setup. Um, I think it is because there's obviously nothing to indicate. First of all, that we have deadly, seven deadly sins going on. We don't know yet that it's a, a serial killer. It really just, you know, could easily come across someone just really hated this guy for whatever reason and now he's dead but slowly as things go on and on um you do start realizing these crimes do have something in common although i gotta say how they managed to put them together or at least how they connected the first one with the next one i I thought was a bit of a stretch for me okay well let's get on to that next one next one is greed where um i think they take a pound of flesh from the guy they do it's a defence attorney, so a lawyer, basically. Nobody yes. likes a lawyer. Um, but that would be, for most parts, a fairly decent reason to. But yeah, they wanted a pound of flesh because of the greed in which he uh, lives his life and profession. Yeah, I personally think uh, a lot of the kill choices are a bit of a stretch when it comes to associating them with the seven deadly sins. And I think it's probably my biggest issue with this film. I think the lawyer, it's too easy, but I also don't know if you can a hundred percent associate him with greed. You know, this person went to school for four to six years to study, to become an attorney. And he's just really good at his job and gets paid accordingly. And so what he got money and he has the money to buy nice things. Oh yes, but you're greedy. So we're going to go and kill you. I mean, (laughs) if he was going to pick someone and associate it with greed, like, Pick a huge CEO of a corporation, the one who undercuts all their employees to save a buck and makes them work in really horrible conditions also to save a buck. You know, like Donald Trump. You know, pick him. <laughs> yeah. He was he was very much around at this time, so that would have been there. To be fair, he did look a bit like the greed guy, the gluttony yeah. guy, sorry. So. All, so all our killer had to do was go to Trump Tower in New York, 
and go and get Trump. There you go. There's your greed. Perfect. Cut out a pound of his golden flesh, dirty <laughs> flesh. Don't um, you mean his well, Cheeto flesh? Yeah, but I bet he stinks. <laughs> he stinks. But um, before I get told off for being a anti-Trump, he, mm. uh, it, I guess with the lawyer, it, it kind of opens up that debate as well that he's just doing his job. If he has to defend a paedophile or a rapist or a murderer, is he defending the, the person or is he just doing his job? Kind of opens up that uh, that level of level of debate. Mm. And obviously we're going to go through each one. So obviously I'm going to mention what my issue is with each one. But that's, that's, that's what we're here for. Glut- gluttony was easy. That's pretty much you can't get more gluttony than a person who is morbidly obese and, and they don't have a medical condition that got them that way. They just got there that way by, you know, eating excessive amounts of food and drink. So that one, yep. You couldn't get more right with that one. Greed, I think it was, it didn't feel like it was well thought out like someone who 100% deserved to be selected. It felt more um, opportunistic to me. Okay. Well, when they're at the crime scene, they obviously they take photographs and Milton Somerset take them to the lawyer's wife to try and see if she can find anything which might be abnormal or out of place, or not quite right, and she notices that one of the pictures is a bit uh, iffy in the in the apartment, or we say the apartment in the bloody lush uh, pad that the guy works works in, lives in. Sorry, so I thought that was his office. It. I think it was yeah, his, it's office. his office. It's his office. He probably does live there, though. He works that much. If I had an office like that, I'd live there as well. It'd be better, better than my house. But yeah, they go back to the apartment, they check the picture, and that's when they start to uncover now that this there may be something going on here. And you're right, the first guy was killed just because the serial killer, who we should name later on, but everybody knows who he is anyway, just didn't like the fact that he was in the state that he was in. So gluttony was killed for that reason. Greed, because I mean, it, like, even that, I mean, greed could be the, the dude at the beginning because, you know, he is greedy, apparently, but in a different sense. But greedy greed food. was the, exactly, greed was the lawyer uh, and he's killed. They find his apart, uh, his office and that's where they start piecing together the clues. And it's the clues there, and also at the uh, gluttony scene, will lead them to a, a suspect's apartment. So somebody who they believe might be behind these killings. And this is the first scene of the film, I think, where we get our real kind of horror slash thriller vibes. In what sense? Well, they find the very emaciated guy, Tied to his bed. We see he's a child molester. He's a drug dealer. He's strapped to his bed, and they've got these um, was it magic tree air fresheners on the ceiling so it doesn't stink. And you've got the SWAT team busting in, and we just see this like human skeleton corpse lying there on the bed. Uh, and the SWAT team didn't realise that the guy was going to jump up and you know say see that he's still alive. So their reactions are genuine which is excellent. But you get that kind of jump scare where they're going towards him and he just leaps up and they all (laughs) shit themselves. So it's really dirty, grimy looking apartment. And this suspect, which they think is the one who's killing the crime, is doing the crimes, clearly isn't because he's tamed to a bed with a year's worth of photographs, Polaroids next to him. Yeah. Of all the seven deadly sins that are depicted, I would, while I, I, I definitely think, as, as you've said, it definitely gives you into the 
thriller horror thing you've got a jump scare you you are looking at what they pretty much just assume is a skeletal corpse of someone you would you could not look at that and think that the person possibly is alive and yet by some miracle well I don't even think it's a miracle a poor bastard so <laughs> he's still alive like that's not a miracle the guy should have died long ago poor thing well not really poor thing he's a child molester but yeah <laughs> but um yeah out of all the seven deadly sins I think this was the worst one by by and by that I mean the worst one to be associated with a seven deadly sin I think it's it doesn't work this is sloth isn't it so it in, is your, sloth. in your opinion what's well why doesn't it work He's not lazy. Sloth is, by the most basic layman's definition, is is you're lazy. And, well, for starters, we've established he's a known child molester. And if you are a, you know, a child molester and you're on a registry and all that stuff, then it's safe to say you're not lazy because some work goes into being that. But this guy is not... L- lazy or sloth on purpose he's been abducted and tied to a bed for a year he's been deliberately immobilized and forced to be unable to move or feed himself or wash himself or any of that that's not a choice therefore it's not his sin it's a sin that has been chosen on chosen for him and forced upon him he isn't sloth it's just been set. It, it doesn't actually associate with sloth at all. So I think that one was definitely the worst and kind of annoys me. I suppose you could have tried harder to get out of his restraints. <laughs> I like this scene because of the setup for it. Because as right now, we don't we don't know who the killer is. The police mm-hmm. don't know who the killer is. Mm-hmm. They think they use logic to get to his apartment. Uh, and by the sounds of it, he's a drug dealer. He's a child molester. He sounds like the kind of guy who may meet the profile of someone who's going to go on a killer. You just mm-hmm. simply because he's a bad dude. And I like I like the setup. I like the music. I like the way it's shot. And obviously, the when when they get into the apartment, you don't know what you're going to find. And when you find this guy on the bed, it is quite uh, disturbing to look at and put mm-hmm. yourself in the shoes of finding him. So, as in terms of the scene, I think it's a bloody good scene. It's one of, it's one of the scenes that I think people may remember the film for. Not the scene, of course. We'll get to that. But one of them. Uh, but I guess if you're going to talk about connection to the deadly, the deadly sin, this one, as much as I love the scene and the setup and the play out of it, it probably is the most tenuous connection. I I I agree with you in this scene. The, the setup, the way you, you know, everybody thinks that they've got a lead, although it does say, and I I think it was even Somerset I think who pointed out that it's just too convenient it's too easy and it does feel that way so if you're a person with a brain obviously I don't think anyone's really expecting the killer to be behind the door going hi here I am I made it that easy for you in such a short amount of time so the question is more not oh who's the killer it's going to be just what are we going to find behind the door and nobody could have expected it to be that and the fact it's really two surprises one is what you find 
And then everybody's just like, Jesus Christ, what the hell is this? And then, of course, the second surprise is, oh, wait, he's not dead. And I, I think nobody knew how to respond in that moment. You're just like, Jesus Christ, like as horrible. I, I think it kind of make people have like what's been done to this person has at least created uh, everyone to have some form of sympathy like Jesus Christ. I know this person was a fucking disgusting human being, pardon my French, but God damn, to go and do that to someone like you, you were so dedicated for 365 days (laughs) to do this. That takes uh, a lot of planning uh, obviously signs of someone who is not only just dedicated but supremely screwed up in the head. Um, the whole way it's shot, I think, is absolutely great. I just don't think when it comes to the writing of the scene and how they have uh, picked this victim and how the victim is associated with the seven deadly sins works into the film's overall plot and the killer's um, methodology. Very interesting. I like the fact that it sets up uh, the 365 days of a photo show that we're not dealing with somebody who is who t- takes things lightly. With the, with the three sins, well, certainly the first one and this one, you can tell that some kind of, well, a hell of a lot of work has gone into it. In the first one, the guy was, we, we saw the CCTV, we found the guy was going back and forward to the, to the uh, store to buy food. And this one, he's been taking pictures. He's been back every day for a year. So we know this guy is somebody who's not to be fucked with, basically. And mm. that's what I found the most intrigue, other than the scene, and I fully get where you're coming from. And obviously, other than the scene and how I like the way it's, it worked, it was that kind of reveal that the person we're dealing with is clearly... Some, I don't want to use the word mastermind because that's not necessarily the right word, but for want of a different word, he, he's a mastermind in what he does because he, he has the patience. And if he's so patient to do that, what else is he capable of? And this is only three sins down. So I like that aspect of it. Yeah, this... Uh, I, I don't know if I would call them... I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them twists, but I think they're at least surprises that come with the story that you just you never see coming especially by the end of the film and it's just everything that happens is just it's like well we did not see that coming and i'm not sure i wanted to <laughs> now okay, as we get further into this film it, it gets a, it starts to go down a rabbit hole but we've had our first three sins gluttony greed sloth in my non-morgan freeman voice <laughs> so now we get the detective doing some detecting eventually they use uh, library records to identify a dude called oh, a John Doe because before that we 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 know we find out that Somerset is more of a learned man he is he he likes to read he likes to study he's in his own time he likes to try and get away from the force as much as possible the police force but never really does he's the kind of guy who stays up until three four in the morning throwing knives at a dartboard he has a pendulum next to his bed to try and help him sleep he's He's seen some shit, man. He's uh, he's been through the ringer. So he's his mind works differently. And Mills, he's a he's the brash cop. He doesn't. He almost mocks Somerset for the fact that he reads books and tries. And when Somerset starts to link things together with the seven deadly sins, Mills, you know, doesn't take him seriously whatsoever. And he and when Somerset sl- slips in the book to read, 
and he spends an evening reading these books and realising that actually, shit, this guy's got a point. He starts to wisen up to what might be happening and that police and detective work isn't just as clear black and white as what you may see in front of you, uh, especially now what we know about the serial serial killer. And we also have the subplot uh, of Tracy. We know she's not happy and she contacts Somerset one evening, meets her up in a grungy-looking diner for a cup of joe uh, and tells him, essentially, that she is cut through the bullshit. She's pregnant. She doesn't want a kid growing up in a city like this. And we find out that Somerset uh, also had something s- similar as well. He had a, his girlfriend at the time was pregnant and he basically told her to abort the child. So he's living with that over his head. We find more about Somerset's you know, tragic back past. We find out what's happening with Tracy. So we've got that going on as well. Did you I liked all that. I liked all this interplaying stories and how these the main two fight against each other. And then we've also got uh, Tracy, who Brad Pitt called the only sunshine in the film. <laughs> when you're initially watching some of these scenes, I, at first glance, or first listen, whichever you want to see it as, um, mm-hmm. kind of went, oh, you know, like Tracy and Somerset. I'm just like, this kind of feels insignificant to me. And then you get to the end of the film, I'm like, Okay, that wasn't as insignificant as I thought it was. <laughs> but um, uh, there's, it's interesting how despite our main trio, I will say, which is our two detectives and our killer, even though he is unknown and unseen for so much of the film, he's still a major character in the entire film, obviously, because, you know, they're chasing him. Um, and yet there's so much they kind of have in common while being such different people. And it makes things really interesting in terms of storytelling because Somerset is an intellectual. So he's able to understand this person on an intellectual level because we can obviously tell that our killer is not an idiot. He is as kind of cultured and and aware of knowledge and obviously reads and he studies. And so he has that in common with Somerset and Somerset in turn is able to understand him in that regard and can Mm. understand what his motives are, which uh, as, you know, we come into, you know, the next few scenes and then Somerset can understand him just a little bit more. And, then you have Mills, who really doesn't want to understand him. He understands by this point he probably needs to try to for the sake of trying to catch him, but he's he's the most reluctant to find any empathy or any sympathy with this particular person. And it doesn't seem more – it doesn't seem like he's just doing it because he just has a natural hate for all criminals – it it seems more like his reluctance is more about not wanting to be able to identify any of himself in the people he's trying to catch. It seems like he's scared of the fact that there are some similarities in what they can do and what he's capable of doing and he just doesn't want to go anywhere near that. So it, it's this underlying thing of sins and then looking at yourself and it, it's not, 
prominent, but it's there and it just makes for really interesting storytelling and, and it really makes me focus more on the dialogue because some lines of dialogue seem to be, you know, just not important. But if you listen to them more, you're like, okay, I see what you did there. Yep, it's it's a well-written film. Uh, I can't argue with anything you've just said, to be honest, because yeah, it's a it's a layered film. There's depth to this film, and even throwaway lines like Brad Pitt uh, saying "fucking Dante," but that comes back. He ends up needing Dante in order to piece together what's going on and get to where we need to be. So there's there's he reads a, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't really add to that because you have eloquently put it there. Yeah, it is like I'm an eloquent. Internal... It is eloquent. Hey, you eloquent! It's like the internal <laughs> struggle, Leslie, because you can tell that Somerset, there's a hell of a lot going on behind his mind. He needs to retire. This, the, he, he, the city, though, has become a part of him now. He, he, all he knows is this city and this police force, and he wants to move away to the countryside, but he fears that he can't do it. And as again, it's another part of his psyche, which is, which is explored and explained. Uh, whereas Brad Pitt's always just moved into it, and he's young and up and coming, and you know potentially if he in later life he could have become a Somerset type character, but you know we'll never know possibly. But mm. we we mentioned John Doe, the detectives say use library records via the FBI, which is something which I have to do very much under the radar because it's not a apparently not a common thing to do and it's frowned upon. But nowadays we know they do it all the bloody time. So they find a John Doe, which we know is also a term for somebody who is a faceless, nameless, anonymous person. They track him to his apartment, but before they can uh, get it, they knock on the door, they, nobody's there, but a guy comes around the corner with a you know, shopping bag and you can't see him. He's silhouetted out at the end of his long corridor uh, and the two detectives kind of look at him and there's that kind of unspoken moment where they know some, they know something's not right. The guy at the end of the corridor clearly thinks, shit, uh, and as you would do, in uh, any rational sane guy does, he gets a gun out and fires on them, which then leads to this wicked chase scene where Brad Pitt, uh, Detective Mills Brad Pitt, is chasing this, whoever this may be, this assailant, through the apartment, through people's, um, uh, how, th- through their houses and the living room, sorry, out the window, down into the dirty, rainy, grimy streets, through the alleyways. Uh, and it doesn't almost doesn't end well for him because... He's, uh, he's attacked by the guy and the guy holds a gun to his head and before he can shoot, you know, he's, he, he walks off, he, he spares Mills, but you get this awesome chasing. I really, really like this because, again, we don't know who the hell this guy is. It's cut so frantically and well that you kind of really feel like you're in Mills' shoes at the time. You've got Somerset trying to go through the back alleys and the back way trying to find out. Again, it's another example of how this film uses frantic editing and cutting to create this sort of panic uh, and you've then got the environment which is just gloomy and has this dread sense all the time so I liked this scene for what it or obviously what it later set up but for the for this instilled moment because I don't know because I, th- I don't know what the hell's going on I don't know who this guy is it worked for me it's very um kind of born identity the whole mm-hmm. running through running through people's apartments, you know, they're just casually sitting there, you know, watching TV, and people are just running through your house, running through the windows. It's the cliche <laughs> if when you're in an apartment, you have to burst through someone's house and apologise to them. It is the cliche type thing. It, it is like that, but um, it it is very well done, and it's funny because you know, obviously, Somerset's kind of content to like 
no, let's not do this. Yeah. <laughs> and Brad Pitt is like, fuck this, I'm chasing the guy. And it's like, but did you think it through? No, you didn't. And obviously that's very much Mills's character. He's reactionary. Everything he does is a reaction to something. He never thinks anything out, whereas Somerset is methodical. So he thinks everything out, which, you know, comes into the next scene. I also find it interesting um, how uh, Brad Pitt actually did injure himself in the making of that scene. His hand went through the windshield of a car and he did have to get surgery. And (laughs) they ended up writing it in because apparently they were already going to write in the character getting injured during this sequence. They just didn't intend for it to be his hand. But, of course, then he did injure his hand. They're like, okay, I guess it's going to be the hand. So we'll go with that one then. Thanks, thanks. You're saving us us prosthetic time. We we don't have to put that in the budget now. Thanks. And if you look at other parts during the film, you can see where they've tried to cover up his cast, where he wears a jacket and it covers up his cast. And in one scene when he's in the office... Uh, on the phone, he's got this fat, swollen purple hand where it's all bruised up and uh, they've tried to cover it up So, because obviously it's not shot in, in sequence like most films aren't. So they've mm. had to try and be clever and creative in how they work it in, but also in the scenes they haven't shot, how they're going to try and cover up the fact that he's got a swollen hand and a cast on. Work, it shows Brad Pitt's determination uh, for his craft, the fact that he'd broken his arm basically, or, or his hand and in this, he didn't tell anyone, he just carried on but they didn't use that take anyway, even though it would have been interesting to see his how he was reacting in that scene when he's you know seen a lot of pain. But they didn't even use that bloody scene, which I can imagine he was slightly slightly annoyed at. But I yeah I like this scene. But we mentioned John Doe before we there's a there's a strange moment beforehand when a there's a photographer who's kind of we're in we're in another building. A photographer's climbing up the back stairs and he's taking pictures and he meant, takes a picture of Mills. And we know Mills is a hothead. He doesn't take kindness to this at all. He ends up basically kicking the photographer down the stairs. But that that plays some significance in the film later on. Yeah, right after uh, Mills has had his uh, very unfortunate chase with our suspected John Doe, he is, again, reactionary. He is not eager to wait on a warrant to search the apartment. Mm-hmm. Somerset's just going, no, 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 we're going to do this by the book. And he's all like, yeah, square. yeah. He's just like, yeah, yeah, you're right. We'll do it by the book. P.S. Kick the door down. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, Boost that door like, down. Do you hear that? Do you smell that? No. And of course, he does later on pay off a um, homeless woman to create their story of a legal search. And it's when they're searching the apartment, trying to find out who this guy is, is there evidence? And they go into the bathroom and all you've got pictures everywhere. And in the bathtub, which is obviously filled with our special fluid used for developing pictures and the photos in the liquid that are being developed are of Somerset and Mills on the very staircase where they were hounded by a supposed journalist, which only adds to Mills's anger when he realises that it wasn't a journalist, it was actually the killer they're looking for who has basically been following them this entire time. Well, they had him at that time. They had him. <clears throat> they had him twice. Twice exactly. that he got away. So now they're thorough. Well, Somerset, he's just, he's calm and collected the whole time. So really the only person who's pissed off is Mills. It's like, great, now I've got a busted hand and still no arrested person. You know, I'm just, I'm a little annoyed here. What, what have I got to show <laughs> yeah. for my efforts? I broke my hand and what do I get? I get 
I get a broken hand. That's it. So yeah. it was it was a great scene. Um, I love how they're going through the apartment and just looking for clues, and then they stumble upon his journals and uh, oh, man, yeah. you know Mills is more interested in just trying to find clues that will tie him to the crimes whereas Somerset is a, a lot more interested in reading these journals and getting into our killer's mind it's like just what what does he want what is what is making him do this and it's basically just that he hates everything that is disgusting and depraved and just wrong in society and he's just kind of sees it as he has to get rid of these things and then I think my favorite thing about that entire scene is when the crime scene experts say we have not been able to find a single fingerprint they're like how is that possible it's his, it's his apartment how do you not have a fingerprint yeah. like sorry we just we haven't found one there's nothing and on top of that it's also the first time that our killer actually communicates with them we know he's we've already just established he's been following them but this is the first time he now uh communicates with them verbally so yes the phone rings but you mentioned your journals the the trivia says that it took two months to actually write every single word in every journal in that room is has got real writing in it just in case it was on screen, it cost $15,000. It took two months to write them, and apparently uh, Summer says, says it will take two months to read them all, but that's just another painstaking part of the detail that went into this film. It's just amazing, I thought. But yeah, you get we get the phone call, and it's we, we get a clue, basically. It's whoever this John Doe is is speaking to Mills, because Mills, obviously, uh, he, like you say, he wants to solve this. He wants to find out who this guy has basically been taunting, essentially. Uh, mm. So he gets the phone, he finds out who he is, they do record it, and we sort of get let start getting led now into the next the next clues, the next sin, and we are taken to a old oh, sort of dirty, divey looking brothel. Uh but the guys aren't uh, the guys don't get there quick enough, and we find out that a prostitute has been killed because a man was forced to rape her using a bladed strap on, which Sounds painful and is bloody horrible sounding. It, out of all the seven deadly sins, this is the one that traumatized me the most. <laughs> this is the worst, worst moment of. I don't even. Sorry, the, not even the ending matters to me. This for me was the wow. worst scene, and I don't mean because it's a bad scene. I mean because like I, I am the most traumatized by this scene, being that I'm a woman. And they don't, obviously, they don't, they don't actually really show how anybody is killed in yeah. this movie. Um, so you do kind of have to, there's, I, I kind of like when films let a person's imagination do the work because usually you can imagine things that are far worse than what they might put on screen. And the whole time you're all, everybody's just wondering, okay, wow, it's a prostitute and a guy who's paid for sex. So obviously this is probably for me the most accurate uh, of the sins. Come on, lust, prostitute. Okay, pretty, you, you couldn't get more right on the money with that one. And the whole time I'm just asking myself, what, what was done? What happened? This dude is so clearly 
physically, mentally traumatized. He looks like he's either going to pass out, throw up, have a nervous breakdown or all three at the same time. Something very horrible has just happened here. And then it's not until when, you know, of course, you see the picture of the strap-on and I'm in horrorville picture I like my brain I can't stop myself as soon as we see what the strap-on looks like I'm officially picturing just everything that happened and what was done to her and done to her with it and I'm just like oh good god make it stop make it stop oh god I'm never gonna sleep again I'm never gonna have sex I oh no make it go away certainly not with a bladed machete bladed strap-on I mean, come on. I mean, obviously, if you haven't seen the movie, obviously everything that we're saying is, of course, then a spoiler. But... (laughs) Sorry, guys. Who... Who thinks, yes, let's attach an incredibly sharp... And even if you look at the picture, that thing looks as sharp as hell. The sharpest dagger, attach it... (laughs) to a friggin' waist strap so instead of a dildo we have a knife and this poor bastard is being held at gunpoint forced to rape her with a knife and I'm just like oh god I think my uterus just fell out of my body right now it's just like <laughs> Jesus Christ you know you imagine that image well, that's probably what happened to her. But, <laughs> you know, you you know, I feel like oh, this would do to women what happens to men every time they watch a movie and oh. a guy gets kicked in the nuts or he gets castrated and you just watch every guy cross their legs. That was me! That was me! Oh, <laughs> that's a brilliant, but I always have to face like I've just sucked on the most disgusting lemon. <laughs> I cross my legs, I start shaking to think, oh, n- not the willy. God, nothing but the winkle. <laughs> Oh man, I will blame Andy Kevin Walker, the bloke, the guy who wrote the screenplay. He obviously <laughs> thought very long and hard about a massive strap on with a yeah, a machete, a, a shine, a gleaming blade on the end. Take that for what you will. But yeah, this is a the guy like you mentioned, the guy who committed the act. He's he's sitting in a corner, convulsing almost in shock. Yeah, you've got the you've got the strobe lights going on. You've got these sort of eerie kind of pink red lights. It's a brothel. It's dirty. Probably stinks in there as well. Um, but it's again visually, it, it's in keeping with the dark tones of this film. Definitely. Even with the lights, even they're subdued. It's there's nothing. There's, there's literally no joy to be found here. But yeah, this is a shocking word. Probably the probably the most one. Oh, in terms of visuals and what you can imagine happening but you mentioned it the best thing about this film one of them one of them is that the gore and the the violence is itself it's not explicitly seen you you have to think about it so you then have to like you've just uh, (laughs) succinctly mentioned there you have to then imagine this guy being forced to i'm not gonna say the word but yeah multiply stabbed this woman's genitals and i mean how long did he do it for i mean that's what he started thinking jesus was it a couple of thrusts was he really going for oh, it? it's God. a horrible way of thinking about it but we then we then led to the next clue because obviously the owner of that club's taken in for questioning um about where who where did he procure these items oh god that's a, that's a good scene as well we finally get to see an interrogation scene in this film as well but the next day there's another murder because that was month number that was murder four that was last 
The next day we get Pride, which is a model whose face has been mutilated and she was given the option to either call for help um, or live disfigured. And sorry, call for help and live disfigured or commit suicide by taking pills. So she doesn't have a choice whatsoever. So she either yeah, dies or she I believe, lives a life where I, she I believe looks... the phone and the pills was uh, glued to her hands. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say the she, she either lives with the fact, fact that she's got this phone glued to her and her looks have gone or she, you know, takes the easy way out and doesn't want to live like an ugly person. So she represents pride. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's another one. I'm gonna go. I'm. I'm iffy on. I, T- I mean, I mean, I mean, it's. Sorry, I always do this thing where I say if I think something is a little bit too, I always say it's too on the nose, but I can't really say that because she had her nose cut off. <laughs> but um. But yeah, I mean, the expression with pride is you know uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face, and. Yes. That's what Somerset points out, that that is literally what he did. He cut off her nose to spite her face. But I don't really see her as representing pride. Pride is, you know, what you do for, uh, well, there's positive and negative connotations to pride. But if we're looking at the negative ones, it's you're doing things for you because in your mind, you're the best, you're infallible, you know, you're just so great at everything. And I don't, and she's a model. She's not prideful. She's vain. And vain and pride, I don't see as the same thing. And the fact that, I mean, if she was a really, like, incredibly prideful person, I almost would have, I, from, or at least how I see it from a psychological standpoint, a person who is vain and of cannot live uh, as a looking disfigured, yeah, they're the ones who are going to choose to take the sleeping pills and off themselves, which is exactly what she did. But if you were a person who was so prideful, I feel like you would call the cops just to be like, no, I'm not going to let you win. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to win in this scenario. I'm going to call and I'm going to save myself. I, I just... I. I mean, it is and it isn't, but for me, I just got more vain vibes than I did pride vibes. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I guess the the implication of pride is having the is in the result. The fact that she would rather off herself than live with that, because yeah, she had her nose cut off. That's why she's given the choice. You have no nose, so call for help or die. I guess the implication is because he knew she was going to take the pills. You can only imagine. That is when where the 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 pride comes from, and I and also I'm going to imagine in my in my head canon <laughs> that he had there are there may have been other people out there. So if she had called the police rather than mess up his plan, it's not again we never know. This is just conjecture, but it's not foolish to think that he he had a the killer had a plan B, he had something else up his sleeve so as to not uh, have his end game ruined by somebody who actually balls him over. So. Um, I guess, yeah, so yeah, the idea of pride comes in the fact that he obviously must have picked somebody who he knew would rather die than live disfigured. That is how I took it anyway. Yeah, I, and, and that's fair and I get that. I just, it just feels like considering he's meant to be so 
particular, so obsessed, so methodical, I just would have thought that his choice of victims would be more exact, and I don't feel that they were. And because he's written as so particular, I mean, just look at the journals. He's so precise about everything. Just the fact that, you know, he was willing to, you know, draw out someone's pain and suffering for a full year just to get the full effect, even though I do not, I I will stand by this, that's not sloth. (laughs) But I, I would have just thought if you're going to write someone as I said, as that methodical, then his choice of victims would be a lot more specific, a lot more like you'd look at it and go, yep, that is like with gluttony. You'd look at that and go, that is 100% gluttony. You look at lust, you go, yep, that is 100% lust. The others, I'm like, yeah, question. (laughs) Well, uh, as it comes to the said and deadly sins, we can give our full opinion on that in the end but again i'm not going to disagree with you whatever i may think about the film uh there you every film's going to have things which you can think hmm. and some of the connections yeah as you say are could have been done stronger shall we say i can see why they went for what they did but i guess if you you there are arguments which you've given for the other side but before we get there we now get to the final like the third act of the film where shit gets real Somerset and Mills get back to the police station. So you can hear somebody sort of meekly sort of asking, hey, detective, detective. And then he just screams, detective. And there's a guy just covered in blood. And we find that is Kevin Spacey. Covered in blood. He's got his, he's got bandages on his finger, on his, at the end of his fingers. Maybe that's why he doesn't have any fingerprints because his fingers are bandaged up the whole time. And he turns himself in. Mills gets his gun out and he goes over and he throws him down. One of the other police officers notices that the blood on his hands is its fresh blood, shall we say. And he says he'll take the two detectives to the scene of where the final two victims lay and confess. But only on his terms, because if he doesn't on his terms, he will plead insanity and he will get away with it. And of course, Somerset, as you've, as you've mentioned earlier on, he knows something isn't right here. This is too easy. Why is he just going to? You know, why is he? Why does it all enter this? The end game is he's going to turn himself in like this. But Mills, of course, absolutely agrees to it. This, before we get to the to denouement, the very end, this is, this is this is it. This is what we've been leading up to now. Yeah, it's uh, also, it's good that we, um, we learn during there. It's like, yay, we got him. And it's just like, well, no, not really. Technically, he's still got you. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you know. It's it's not much of a win if the person hands themselves in. Like it's like, do you do you really think he just gave up and hand like, come on, Mills, are you that stupid? <laughs> yes, he is. But yes. <laughs> but also, it's cool. <clears throat> sorry, but it's great that when um we figure out why they had that little scene earlier where this um crime investigator said we have no fingerprints around, and it's because they learned that he periodically removes the skin off his fingers as to not leave fingerprints, which again goes to the fact that A, he's got some issues and B, (laughs) he's also very clever and methodical. And to to cut off your own fingertips. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, I like my fingertips. I like them. 
<laughs> so you don't go around cutting off your fingertips? Considered it bad, no. No, no, well, you, to get to that serial killer level, you're going to have to take some t- sacrifices. I will trim some fat off my body, but that's about it. <laughs> you bloody idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, it shows that John Doe... We, we, know, we know now that this guy will go... To, what length this guy will go to to achieve his plan, but the fact that, yeah, he's self-mutilating himself in order to make sure he gets to where he wants to be. And he wants to be remembered, we find out. But we get... There's a nice scene as well before they go with Somerset and Mills when they're shaving their chests so they can put the wires on, mm-hmm. where they kind of... Because before that, we didn't mention before that, there's a scene where Somerset is invited around for dinner at, with Tracy and Mills. And they, you know, you start to see Mills kind of in his own environment. He takes his foot off the gas a bit and relaxes and you get to see a, a more of a bond between the two of them. And we get it just before the car scene. Now, you have Mills and Somerset. They agree to take John Doe to the scene of the final victims, where they where the victims are, where they are, where you can find them. And you get this such a brilliant scene of the three of them in the car. And Kevin Spacey, uh, the artist, he such a fantastic performance. So chilling. It's like Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, I find. He just gets given this wonderful dialogue in the back of this car. He knows where this is going. Mills is hot-headed. He thinks everything's tied up. Somerset is quiet. He isn't sure. He knows something bad's going to happen. But John Doe is so silently smugly sure that he knows what's going to happen it's such a wonderful scene i thought it uh it definitely has the best build-up of any scene in the movie definitely i mean you already know with some scenes like going back to sloth it's like well we know when we open the door something is going to happen we don't know what it is but you you also don't expect it to be something that terrible because you're so early in the movie. But we're approaching the end. We have our killer and none of it is, you know, it's like you don't, nobody I think would ex- is looking at this going, yeah, he's just casually handing himself in. It's like, nah, 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 nah. Something, something very bad is about to happen. But what is it? Exactly. And so you, you're just like, it's funny because we're in a car ride and I feel like the audience, we know that we're getting to a destination that's going to reveal something very bad. So I feel like it's funny that we're the audience going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's a car <laughs> ride. Like I'm like, I'm finished. I need a wee. Yeah. I need a wee. <laughs> oh, no. but, uh, it's just there's there's that definite sense of impending dread in that scene and the way – during this whole car ride and Somerset is more analyzing what is going on. It's like he is listening to everything that John Doe is saying, trying to see if he can read something out of it to figure out what is about to happen. And Mills is just so busy kind of uh, acting tough and superior, trying like in his mind thinking he – he probably thinks he's like, ha ha, look at me. I'm just, I'm going to really say some mean things to you. That's going to make you feel like shit. But John Doe doesn't care because he has the upper hand here. And everything he says is not, is definitely not directed at Somerset. Everything he says is directed at Mills. He is goading him. Yeah. It's, it's subtle, 
but it's so direct and so specific. It, he is riling him up and we don't understand why just yet. Exactly. You're dead right. You can tell, you know something's going to happen and it's set up so well in attention and you can just tell by the way all three of them work so well together and how they're, how they're acting that something bad is happening. And of course, in my head, when I first watched it, I'm thinking, we've had five murders. He's leading these two to this remote location. They're going to be the two victims, surely. They're going to be yeah. the last two. That's going to make their seven. And I th- but again, is that going to be too easy, you think? And uh, as it turns out, when we get, because there's a we, there's a helicopter following, obviously, to make sure that you know things go that bad. But John Doe, he directs them to this remote part of the desert. And interestingly enough, this is the only part of the film where there's bright sunshine. It's the place is lit up. Whereas before, it's all grey, dark, grimy, wet. This is bright sunshine. You've got the, you've got the lovely colours of the desert. You know, it's the complete opposite of what we had before, but we know... I really happening. don't think it's the desert. I don't believe they have deserts in New York. It's a desert location, but... It's, um, it's, a, it's a desolate location. It's just open field is what it is. But on that note, they, they never actually say where this fil- film was shot. So it's just a city. Um, so it, they've, it's like, almost like a fictional city. So... It's a desolate location somewhere. Um, but with yeah, lots of bright. power lines. Yes, with lots of overhead power lines. <laughs> and when when they get there, they they uh, John Doe leads them. He starts leading them into this kind of you know landscape, and then uh, a a delivery van starts turtling up the road, and that's when you think, what the fuck? Who's in that? What's happening? Because this is in the distance. Somerset sees this van hurtling down the road towards them. And Mills and and Doe, they're walk, they're being led. Doe's leading Mills one way, and Somerset sees it, so he's off. He's off to find out what's going on in that. When the driver gets out, he's just a, you know, he's just a guy who works there. He's got. He just says that he was told to be there at this time with a package. At the same time, Mills is holding Doe at gunpoint, and this is when Doe's now John Doe's now starting to taunt Mills. He was telling him how envious he was of his life, of his wife, of the of of him as a person. So they got that going on in the distance. Somerset has got this box. He doesn't want to open it because who knows? There could be a bomb in it. God knows what's in there. Well, he he decides he has not taken that box over to Detective Mills without knowing what's in it. He looks in the box. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the box? He starts, but that's later on. <laughs> Yeah, that's Somerset true. Somerset opens that box and he's fucking hell. You can just tell by his face. He has seen hell in that box. He he doesn't take the box with him, but he goes over to Mills and he's saying, put the fucking gun down. Put the gun down now. This is not going to end how we think. It's an immediate response of Somerset knows he doesn't really have time to respond to what's in the box. He just has already gone into brain mode where he gets it he's like this is why we're here this isn't about it's, it's about him it's about mills that's why we're here it's it's specifically about him and he's just like shit i've just let the two of them be all the way over there alone it's like i know where this is going to lead i have to stop this so you can see that there's so much oh crap oh crap 
him running to get back, like, just just don't do anything, don't do anything. And, and you know, Mills the whole time is like, why, why, what's what, what's going well, on? I don't what? know what's in the box, yeah. Yeah, and, of course, John Doe uh, tells him and just... Oh. And he mentioned, he says, well, you didn't know she was pregnant. Mills didn't oh. know. And it's John Doe who's the one who tells him. And, of course, Somerset's, Somerset, like, pistol whips him, to you know, for doing it. This is the first time we really see Somerset kind of lose his composure. Pistol whip him, he just backhanded him. Yeah, he whacks him because he knows that's it. This is it. This is the end game now. And we get about a minute, 90 seconds of Brad Pitt trying to contemplate. He's got the gun at his, at John Doe's head. He's going back and forward with what to do. You know, he's fucked. He's broken. And then we see a very, very quick flash of Tracy's head. A very subliminal shot, and this is in that. This is when Mills decides he's gonna what he's gonna do. And that just moment, uh, it's Somerset knows what's going to happen. He knows that yeah. there's no bother trying to really say anything. That's why he didn't want to tell Mills what was in the box because he knew exactly what was going to happen. But John Doe has already said it for him. He's 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 in a single split second not only told Mills, by the way, I murdered your wife. I cut off her head. I did so while she pleaded for her life and her unborn child's like, oh, did you not know she was pregnant? Yeah, by the way, I killed your unborn child. And in doing so, I've learned that my sin is envy, meaning he wants Mills to kill him because he is a victim of sin as well. And in doing so, and he wants Mills, who is meant to be representing the sin wrath, shoots him. And just that moment before the gun goes off, there are so many emotions that go across Mills' face in Brad Pitt's portrayal. There's, it's, He's got so much to try to process in a single second. It's, oh, I'm a dad. No, wait, I'm not a dad because my wife's dead and my child's dead and my wife has just been decapitated and she's in a box over there and this is the person who did it. What the fuck am I supposed to do? It's it, so worrying. It is. It really is. And I think the performances are equally great I, I, it, it does pain me to still give any praise to kevin spacey these days but god damn it he he did he did do a good job you know before we realized that he's also a sick bastard in real life i guess he wasn't acting um <laughs> but it's just somerset he he looks so defeated and John Doe looks content. He feels so resigned to the events he set up. He knows he's about to die because it's what he planned. And it's just, you're just kind of like, oh, crap. It is a chilling scene. I mean, yeah, some, uh, John Doe closes his eyes because he knows at the moment, just before he's shot, because he knows this is it. He wants to be remembered as for what for his actions for he because again like lots of villains he thinks what he's doing is right he thinks he's doing the world a favor by cleansing them of these uh these well sinners 
uh, as we know that that's you know villains are generally also a bit not always correct and twisted but for this is one hell of a gut punch ending and i know brad pitt cops a lot of flack for his what's in the box lines and that but hell i'm not an actor so i can't say you know to somebody else could you have done it better but for me it works because he doesn't know it's in the box he only knows what this guy in front of him is te- is telling him and then you get that final revelation that john doe's the one who tells him he was going to be a dad but not anymore and it's just that the close-ups to his face it's, t- it's a tight shot on his face as we ch- we can see everything that's going on behind his mind everything you just mentioned do i kill him do i keep him alive what do i do everything and he doesn't as we said we get that flash of tracy's head uh smiling cause it's not her head in the box it's just a, her face uh and then yeah he brad pitt just pumps john doe full of lead meaning give meaning he wins somerset knew it was coming he doesn't try to stand in front of him or restrain him. He knows it. Like you say, he's defeated. And in Mill's case, he has murdered an a an unarmed prisoner. He was he had no as far as the guys in the helicopter who are watching, there was no threat. He shoots him dead in the head. He's taken away, but it's that most depressing, horrible ending which you could imagine. And the studio New Line didn't want this ending. They wanted something different. They said this was too dark. And it was Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt who both, I believe, actually said, if you take this ending out, we will not star in this film because they believe in it that much. And in the end, they kind of, they compromised. So Morgan Freeman gave a, gave an Ernest Hemingway quote, I think, at the end, which didn't really like. He didn't, but it kind of softened up that ending somewhat. But mm. I can't imagine this film, and I know it's easy to say that in hindsight, I can't imagine this film with another ending. They were originally going to have Somerset kill John Doe, but no. Brad Pitt said he wouldn't have done that. It was Brad Pitt and again Morgan Freeman who kind of said, "Well, that's not in his character." But Jesus Christ, what a hell of an ending to this film! And after everything that came before, was this ending? I guess satisfying is the wrong word, but did it end this film in a way befitting to what had come earlier? Uh, yes and no. I mean, for starters, it's completely unexpected. I mean, who would have ever thought that? you know Mills's wife who doesn't have much of a story going on would become the last well second last victim that's not something anybody could have predicted and I'm good at predicting stuff but even I was like oh 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 no no I didn't say that coming whoops but it's being that Mills is wrath I feel like I feel like by the end we're kind of a little bit off the seven deadly sins topic just a bit because if the whole point is we're killing people based on sins, well, you've just established someone is wrath but they're not dead and the previous victim who was killed before that didn't have a sin. You know, Tracy is killed simply to set off Mills but she has committed no sin so she doesn't fit the all the other crimes. So that film that so that's a break away from the pattern. And then of course the fact that, yeah, you've just essentially what John Doe has done is committed suicide by cop. And it's just I'm just like, well, is he hoping that by this that Mills is at some point gonna go and kill himself? Is that how you get rid of wrath? Because I don't know, aside from the fact that you've now just got a compre- incredibly traumatized, broken 
cop who has just committed flat-out murder and that may impact his career in the future just a yeah. bit. <laughs> I can't imagine he got let out of prison anytime soon. Um, yeah, so in terms of the fact that it's called Seven and it, it does address the seven deadly sins, but by the time we get to this scene, I don't feel like the victims are, you know, associated with the sins as they were in the original. It feels like a breakaway from that storyline. Um, it, it, it is interesting, however, to have a killer um, recognize himself in his victims because he goes and says, I realize my sin is envy. I envy you and your life, which is why he has to go. Um, which is, like I said before, why I feel like Somerset and he had things in common because they are able, of, because they are intellectual, they are able to see themselves in each other and all that. But I also, I, I definitely liked how, um, I really liked Somerset backhanding him because in that moment, it was not about hurting him. It was an act of Somerset trying to protect Mills. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, he was going to find out that his wife was dead and that her head was in that box. That could not have been hidden from him. But I think Somerset, at least in his mind, could know he's like, well, at least he doesn't have to know she was pregnant. He can be spared this one thing because if he was given that extra bit of information that would completely send him off the deep end and I don't think that's something he could ever recover from that's a whole other thing because he has to learn at the same moment you were a dad but you're not a dad and that's and as soon as he says oh yeah she was pregnant he just backhands him trying to shut him up Mm -hmm. like no, no, no! I was trying to spare him that. It's like <laughs> son of a bitch. It's like that's he's the like, point. and that's like Somerset goes. That's it. I fucking give up. Like I, I nah, he's like fucking. He's gonna kill you, and I can't do anything to stop him now because you wet and opened your mouth. Thanks a lot. He, he finally let his guard down, and that I, I like that as well. That he didn't just stand there. He didn't try to stand in front of him. It was, it was just that realization that he's done it now. Great, you, you've let the cat out of the bag, and. What can I? What more can I do? Somerset's world weary enough to know that his he can't get in the way of grief. He knows he knows kind of what that trauma is like in yeah. a different kind of way. And given how Brad Pitt is already acting, he knows this is this this is the end. And I I like the fact that you know I, I on on that I like the fact that as you mentioned, John Doe became the sin envy and. He wanted to be remembered, but he knew that he would only be remembered. And Brad Pitt said, you know, in the car that nobody's going to remember you because you're not going to win. And that is exactly what it comes down to. If Brad Pitt doesn't, if Mills doesn't shoot him at that moment, the seven deadly sins aren't captured. And Mills, uh, not Mills, John Doe can't be remembered for that, for what he thinks he will be because he would have failed. And it's that it hinging on that part of the plan, which is what I, which for me makes it work so well that in order to, to be remembered he has to have that sacrificial moment where he he has to die for it to become that martyr becoming the sin be, and i guess not hoping but knowing he must know that that mills is going to do this so it kind of yeah it rests on that moment so if I, for me i liked it i think it worked for that but i could see again the the other viewpoints to it but 
it's ahead of an ending. For me, it's one of the most memorable endings of any film I've seen. Um, there were other other endings rewritten. I got one that apparently one of them was Somerset discovered John Doe was raised by an abusive priest. So the tables are turned, Spacey, in a church orphanage. Doe kidnaps Mills and lures Somerset to an old church uh, with an artwork which depicts the set deadly scenes, which already sounds shit. And Doe and Somerset have a shootout. Mills is killed during this struggle when Somerset then kills John Doe. That sounds awful and would have really messed with the I mean the tone of this film's grim but it's consistent that would have just sounds crap and I know you like we've mentioned in our last copycat episode that you like backstory sometimes uh, do you think having John Doe being a abused child in a church do you think that would have added to his story at all in this case no because he is a person who already his his um style of killing is so specific and it speaks to his psyche so much that I don't really think that you would even need to have a background that triggered it. You can just be that person. So you don't really need to establish a backstory to him. And I kind of like him more as this kind of unknown person. He, he, for the entire movie, he is John Doe. He doesn't have a name. And they're never going to get one because, you know, no fingerprints. There's always something weird about that. Like, they they really never did get his name. And they were never, like I just said, they're never going to because he has no fingerprints. They could from possibly from dental records unless he filed his teeth or got them capped. But, but here's, here's the thing where I think he's kind of, he thinks he wants infamy. He seems to both want infamy and to rid the world of evil. But um, he is 100% not going to get infamy. Um, two reasons. One, they don't know his freaking name. <laughs> it's, it's like just John Doe. Yeah. So it's like, well, well, you can't be famous if we don't know who the fuck you are. And secondly... The number one thing that any journalist, that any cop for that matter, is going to remember from what has happened is that a detective killed someone in cold-blooded murder. It's going to be cop kills killer, you know? It's going to, all the focus is going to be on him. Technically, Mills is going to become famous from this not John Doe. I'm like, you created infamy for somebody else, not yourself. But so I'm just like, ha you did ultimately lose, sucker. But I mean, let's face it, it, by the end of the film, nobody wins. Nobody won. John yeah. Doe John Doe does not get infamy. He just gets dead. Mills is now a murderer and a widow and a kind of an was a dad, not a dad. And Somerset just gets to go out with the worst retirement in history. <laughs> yeah, it's not how we planned it, is it? Let's just be fair. There's nothing. There's nothing happy about this film. And usually, I'm not always a fan of those kind of films because sometimes it's done for. You know, just for effect over storytelling, but god damn, it works in this film. I don't think the happy ending would have worked at all. It would have undone no. all the work before. It, it would have. I feel like this This is more 
realistic in a sense. Yeah, like, yeah. because I feel like if, if you're a detective, I'm not, I'm not one, just so people know, I'm not. But sure. <laughs> only in my dreams. But <laughs> if you're a detective and you deal with murder and killers and death and violence and all that shit all day, just because you found the bad guy and put him away, does does that mean that it's a happy ending? No, because there was still a whole bunch of people who were killed in the process, who have lost their lives, and, and all these families have been affected. And there is no happy ending to that. There is an ending, but it's never going to be a happy one. So I think if you had tried to give this a light, bright, yay, we caught him and we get to walk away and we're fine, it feels more natural for our protagonists to walk away scarred. It, that feels more realistic and normal to me. And it's most certainly, above all, it's rememberable. It's rememberable? Memorable. Rememberable. I'm in Harry Potter world now, rememberable. My rememberable. Sorry. <laughs> no, that is, an, that is an item in Harry Potter. My apologies. It is rememberable. Well done. Um, I know it's a... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, yeah, I, the film would have... It wouldn't have blown, but it would have... The ending would have sucked had he kind of just shot him in the knee and been like, right, we're taking you to trial and you're going to spend all your days in prison or getting the death penalty, whatever. Yeah, that would have just been too neatly tied up. And mm. this film... I mean, this people have been debating this film since it came out. I remember the IMDb boards, rest in peace... People would debate whether there's a good ending, whether there's a bad ending. Like proper deep dives into the mental state of all three of the lead characters. This provoked intense debate, and that's probably still will do now. I mean, I I think this ending is near flawless. I think I think it's superb. Um, I think if you have any film that has an ending that does create that much debate in people, then it's a pretty damn good ending. Yeah, I mean, even if it, even if the ending itself isn't the best, or the film wasn't the best, if you can create something which people talk about, even you know, in the pubs and bars, and for a couple of weeks or a year later, but you know, decades later, you know that you've created something at least. Definitely, you've left your mark. And Fincher did say to Freeman and Brad Pitt, "You are going a bit like John Doe. This, you're going to be remembered for this film. You know, you may not." It may not be your best film you ever do, but at least people will remember this film and you being in it. And I think they do. For me, the two work so well together. I think they're a brilliant pairing. Yeah, I remember oh, it was a few, it was a couple months ago, and it was during the whole Kevin Spacey thing going on. And I was talking mm. to a friend, and we we were discussing um, Seven. And she was, she was, she's like, it's one of my favorite movies. And now I don't know how I feel about it anymore. <laughs> and she says, what do I do? And she's like, I don't know if I can watch it. And she says, I love it. But now that I know what I know, and I said, like, let's face it. It's still a great film. And we can say a lot about the film that is thanks to our director, our writer, and our two leads. And it's like, I'm like, look, Kevin Spacey may be a sick bastard in reality, maybe even more so than this movie, hmm. but he did, and and now it pains me to say that, but he did 
you know, he was a good actor. And, you know, uh, well, he was a good actor because he acted like a sane person for all these years. But, <laughs> sorry, can't help with the digs. I can't stop myself. <laughs> but he did a really good job. And, you know, you, you, I can still go back and watch that movie. It doesn't change anything. I'm not going to penalise everybody else in the film because of one fuckhead. But yeah. it's just... I don't know if I could have pictured anybody else in the role, even now. And every time I hear, you know, all the other people who could have been offered the role, I just look at him like, mm, nah, nah. He he becomes the character. He doesn't to me. I don't look at it and see Kevin Spacey, even though he looks like him, and it's because he shaved his head. But it's such a compelling character, and I guess it's all the intrigue and mystery beforehand. I just mm. want to know who John Doe is. I think it was she who plays him at the time, and obviously separating the art from the artist in the film he's in, he's fantastic for what he's got it's a short amount of time and I mentioned like similar to Hannibal Lecter he's not in the film for that much but when he is in it it's to some of the most memorable parts of it obviously outside of the screen outside of the film different story whatsoever but in terms of what he does in, in this film he's excellent and they, I mean my, Michael Stipe was going to get the job uh, REM was considered and that would have been eh? shit as much as I like REM and Michael Stipe and him in the back of the car losing his religion wouldn't, wouldn't have worked at all. And he was only cast like, I see what I did there. He was cast two days before filming. He wasn't on any of the call sheets. He wasn't on any of the posters, Kevin Spacey. So nobody knew he was in this film, which, you know, nowadays, clever marketing's everywhere. But that's for people going into the cinema for the first time, they also have no idea who John Doe is. They don't know it's Kevin Spacey. He's good at that kind of uh, deception, obviously, with the cars of Soze stuff from Usual Suspects. But... Uh, well, they will go, go elaborate. Go. No, that that's no, that's it. I was just, um, I just think it's funny. We're on the same wavelength. We're on the same wavelength. Too we get, we right. get. <laughs> That's why we do the show because I trust Ashley's awesomeness. But I mean, yeah, there's some, just a couple of things as well. Cool things. There's seven shots fired at the end of the film. One from Somerset when he stops the vans, and six then go into John Doe's body. Seven minutes into the film. Uh, there we get. There's a phone call which kind of starts ev- everything off, and then seven minutes before the end of the film, we get another phone call, which um, pretty much sets the end of the film off as well. Uh, this was the seventh highest grossing film of 1995 as well. So there's a lot more seven trivia to go in, but I thought they were quite cool. But I guess, what did you think of Seven? Is the overall question because I know you've had your issues with some of the fairly key moments of the film, the scenes themselves, but what did you think of it encapsulating all of that? I, I I can't help myself having those issues. I'm just such a stickler when it comes to a movie's mythology. And for me, it it may not be, you know, a, a supernatural thing or whatever, but it does have a mythology kind of to it in terms of how our killer operates. So I do, I do really you know laser focusing on those things and if I see an issue I'm going to be stuck remembering it <laughs> but it, it it still doesn't really detract that much for me even though obviously I said a lot about them it doesn't detract from me that just how uh awesome this movie is and it still has one of the best endings in film history for me I mean yeah that one if I don't know anybody who has seen this movie and doesn't remember the ending. Like you could probably forget everything else that happened or you could even forget the lost death 
But unless you're a woman, <laughs> I doubt you're going to forget that. But <laughs> but everybody remembers it. Like it, if you, whether you hated it or you liked it, everybody remembers it. It's it's kind of dare I say iconic question mark. Oh. <laughs> in this sense, I will allow you that because again, we've had we've had decades to not like three days in that Joker shit, but we've had decades <laughs> to to mull over this. And everybody know everybody can quote or not everybody, but film fans can know what's in the box. We know that quote. It's everybody knows the ending of this film. For, it's like infamous for its yeah. Even if even people bleakness. who haven't seen the movie know the ending and they know the what's in the box line. They're like, I don't know what it means. I just know where it comes from and I haven't yeah. seen it either. And, and that says that that's okay, like you mentioned, if, if for anyone to be able to do that with a film is, is you, you, you've, you've hit your zenith there. But I think yeah. the film is very well written. I think it's, and I like David Fincher and I think he's a fabulous director. And I think Seven's brilliantly directed. I think he's got an awful lot going for it. In terms of detraction, yeah, some of the links to the sins are tenuous, you could say, but as you said, they can't they're kind of cosmetic to a point because they don't detract from the story overall. For me, this is one of my this is one of my top twenty films of all time. For everything everything which is into it. I think the performances work wow. the two the two leads work so well together. And you don't they you can't do. you can't just you can't just put two brilliant actors together and expect them to work well. You have to have chemistry. Mm. Kevin Spacey, for all his sins, is marvellous in a villain role. I just think everything comes together to create kind of that like almost like a perfect storm at the time. It's just was just a wonderful film. It it definitely is, and one of the things I think is a good sign of how uh, well or how impactful a film is is when it becomes a pop culture reference. Yes. It's often used in other films, and this definitely has become a part of pop culture because there are so many films or TV shows that will make a reference to it that it's just kind of always going to be there. I think there are some people, you know, who uh, part of the next generation who already know about Seven without ever seeing it. It's just kind of become ingrained in culture. It's just there. <laughs> Yeah, and again, by doing that, you create something. I don't want to say something bigger than a movie, but you know, you've you've hit the jackpot with that. So I guess cha-ching! we've done copycat and we've done seven. Ranking the two of them, where are you putting them? Like, which one do I like more? Into just in terms of yeah, basically in terms of everything you know about the films, enjoyment, filmmaking technique, whatever you want. Where do you put the two films? Uh, well, Copycat still is my number one. It's it's never mm-hmm. going to not be my number one. But, I mean, I, I recently made a list of my top ten thriller movies or psychological thrillers, and definitely seven is in the top ten. I can't argue with that. Uh, everything's subjective, of course, in terms of where people put things in their list, but I think most people would have this film in their top ten, fifteen thriller films, just mm-hmm. because, I mean... Ending aside, for me, it's just a blood damn fine film. There's so much going for it, like the the, the visuals, the like I mentioned, the direction, the writing, the foreboding, grim tone, which is over the whole thing, the tension, which is set up towards the end, and of course, the ending. So for me, it goes into number one, um, pushing copy it down to number two. Um, 
that's not to say that nothing's going to come and overtake this. We don't know what's coming up in in the next few months. But for me, it goes to number one. I thought this was a a fabulous, fabulous film. Grim, but bloody brilliant. But I think for this second episode, I think that's that for this episode of Thriller Nights. Again, I haven't got copyright to use Michael Jackson. But thank you for your awesomeness once more, Ashley. It's been a pleasure. I know it has. You must be so happy to have me. This is why I have you, because the pleasure is certainly all mine. So, But I'm looking forward to next month's show, whatever that may be, and the movie me discussion. Too. I know, but before then, where can the world find you online? And, before, and I believe you've got some things planned for the month of October. I do. I'm going to go and kill every brain cell I have by watching too many movies than should be humanly possible. <laughs> I'm glad you said brain selling and not um, people in the community. I thought you were going to go on a murderous spree for Halloween. Look, I know you want people to believe that I'm a serial killer, but I'm Jeez. not, okay? I'm just Jeez. a serial mover watcher. <laughs> yeah, ooh. yeah, well, we'll see how many of those films actually inspire to go and kill 204 people or however many films you are watching next month. Oh, good God, yeah. 31 days of Halloween starts. Wow. The countdown is nearly there. We are starting. It's just, it's like, you could say it's a day, but I'm just, I'm counting in hours now by this point. And yeah, my list of movies that I've challenged myself to watch has 217 movies on the list. I only have to watch 204 to beat my record of 203 last year. And if I succeed, I will be dead by the end of it and I will go and nap for a month. (laughs) So if anybody wants to get hold of Ashley, you probably won't. So wait until November. But where can where are you on the internet? Where can I find you anyway? I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and especially YouTube, where I will be posting recap videos of my progress on the 31 Days of Halloween Challenge at the Movie Oracle. The Movie Oracle. Whoop! Do go check out the YouTube <laughs> channel because it's, it's always updated. It looks good. It sounds good. The content's good. Why wouldn't you want to support Ashley on this suicidal movie mission i mean we all have movies but excuse my french fuck me that's an awful lot in a you've only got said amount of days and hours in a day so good luck with that if you really want to find me you can find me what i watch tonight.co.uk instagram facebook twitter just search what i watch tonight and we are on there podcasts you can find us apple Podcasts, google play Podcasts, spotify stitcher pocketcasts uh, they are. We are going up on YouTube now. It is just the audio only, but we are now actually doing it. So anywhere you can hear podcasts, we're there. Woo! If you like the show, leave us a review and let us know what you think because it helps the show a lot. And tell other people as well that they've got a show about thriller films. Uh, let them know. If you don't like the show, shh. <laughs> but until then, <laughs> from me, is see ya. And from Ashley, ta-ta.